What is a city? Why, and more importantly, how do we build cities, plan cities, and study cities? And how can we do that equitably? My name is Wesley Reibling. And my name is Nathaniel Hanuel James. Our lives converged during the height of the lockdown through community arts projects, and we instantly hit it off as friends and co-conspirators. We wanted to create art, theater, and more importantly, conversations about equitable cities and participatory art practices. So we started meeting with city planners, artists, leaders, movers, shakers, and everyone in between to ask folks about their own experiences in cities, especially Toronto, and ways to create better futures. So welcome to Flux in the City, our community action project. Our first guest is Zara Abram. We spoke to Zara about community consultation, placemaking, and the whole concept of what makes a monument. I'm Zara Ibrahim. Uh, my pronouns are she, they. I am speaking to you both from the West End of Toronto. I would describe myself as a lot of things, maybe a multi-hyphenate in a, <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> and I think it's accurate because I, I have spent a lot of my career accumulating skills and then exp- going deep with some of those skills to figure out how they can impact communities and cities. So I would say I am a public interest designer. I am a community organizer. I'm an artist and I'm an educator. If you want a tidy title, I am the co-founder of Monumental Projects. And I'm sure we'll be talking more about that uh, over the course of our conversation. Thank you so much, Sara. Um, <laughs> and maybe because I, I think that the next question was because you, you've done what we call a wild amount in your career uh, with, with Monumental and beyond. And I was going to ask sort of how would you describe yourself and your practice? And you sort of already have. But I was wondering if you might give just maybe a brief description or context of sort of what is your work with with Monumental and what's the mission of of the organization? Yeah, for sure. Well, my personal work, um, I have had a a personal thesis around power since I was in my early 20s. And it was some permutation of supporting systems to evolve and institutions to evolve to give more people power. Um, and to share power. And so that's always been very central and there's been permutations of it at every stage of my career, but there has been this fixation on where is power concentrated, understanding why, and then starting to compassionately (laughs) dismantle the systems that guard it so that it can diffuse, right? That power can go into the diaspora. I've had many sort of explorations of how that's possible throughout my career. Monumental is one expression of it. And we originally, I started with it with my colleague, Kopi Hope. You know, at the time we were really focused on this rhetoric that was going around, around an equitable recovery. And an equitable recovery was synonymous to us with an equitable world. It's like, well, everything is, everything's going through recovery. There's not a single element of our lives that has been untouched by this. So we are recovering our lives. We are recovering our world. So it is, how do we build a more equitable world, but also in the spirit of power, how do in this equitable world, we raise others up as we rise, where it's not just, if we do well, 
you know, we stand alone. It's how do we lift the collective as we get more power. The work has looked many different ways. That's sort of the central mission of the organization is to understand how do we embed equity as we recover from COVID and specifically how do we embed equity in cities and communities, which is really our, both of our homeroom in a, in a few different ways. What I will say is that we spent the first year and a half of our organization looking for the, the place where the power is sort of getting tightly gripped. And we found our way into sort of this, this corner of city building that no one likes to really engage with, which is real estate development. Um, and so right now our real focus is on how do we embed equity and power sharing and shared prosperity for more people through understanding and sort of reconstituting the idea of how development happens in the city and ultimately what happens, like so both process and outcomes. And we're really focused on looking at how the institutions that govern development and civic life need to evolve and change. So it's sort of two mandates. How do institutions that impact civic life need to evolve and change? And then specifically sort of the depth, the, the area of depth right now is and focus is really around how do things show up in the city? You know, how do, how do things land? How does infrastructure land on the ground and why? And who benefits from it? So we're we're really deep in that space for the moment because that feels like a, a frontier of city building that needs to be understood, explored and redesigned. That's amazing. Thank you for that. So when I when you're speaking around equity and like what the future holds for our urban areas, do you feel comfortable for our audience explaining kind of yeah, what an unequitable consultation or experience for community looks like and what the opposite looks like and kind of explaining the difference between those two? Yeah, I mean, there's so many details. There's so many, like, I, I could list out a million different ways in which the way we engage the public is not meeting people where they are. But then we have to remember that people are in different places. <laughs> right? So there's no, it, it's about introducing a plurality of ways of having a conversation that accommodates for more ways of being. And right now, so much of the public discourse is centered in spaces that are designed around assumptions, assumptions that you have time, assumptions that you have money, assumptions that you have social supports, assumptions that you speak English, assumptions that you're able-bodied, assumptions that, that there's no power dynamics around your gender, your race, your religion, all those different things. And so it's so super dangerous, always super dangerous to design from a place of assumptions. And so I think I'm sure many of the folks you speak to will talk about how we're really using an outdated one size fits all approach to consultation. And in through different parts of my work, you know, and, and through different eras of my career, I've looked at more fiercely incremental ways of improving consultation and then radical ways. And I've tried to sort of make the future the past by showing that Wherever you are, if you work in municipality, maybe it's fierce incrementalism. If you're an, if you know outside of the institution like I am, you can be more radical. But there are a plurality of ways to do this. Where I think about consultation is there's a few sort of main anchors that I think we need to do better. One is that it's really hard to respond with specificity to a very general question. What do you want for your community? I, I mean, I want to live well. I want to be safe. I want to have a park I could go to. I want to be able to get around safely. I want to live in a house that I like <laughs> or a home or a space, a home that feels good for me and gives me dignity. That kind of information is generally what most people would say. <laughs> and so how do you get to that layer of depth and specificity and nuance? Well, 
you can't ask direct questions like that, right? It's like, you have to just talk to people about their lives and then do the work of teasing out that nuance, right? Of teasing out. So instead of saying, uh, hey, Zara, what do you want for your city and community? Say, hey, tell me about, tell me about your day. If you were to ask me that about this morning, I would say, well, I left this morning and the sidewalks were covered in snow and I was super late. And so I was like shuffling in the snow to meet my friend. And then we did this and and I would tell you about all the different things that happened. We sat outside, we were super cold, but we wanted to see each other. So we sat outside on this like kind of, you know, little table and chairs and we kind of made it work. But if you listen to me speak about my day, you could probably pull out things around like, oh pathways around her community really matter, right? Or a place to gather with friends when all seasons (laughs) matters, right? So there's ways we can tease out more nuanced information from folks if we just talk about their lives. I love telling the story of this piece of research that we did around public space on the waterfront. And instead of asking people like, what's your favorite public space on the waterfront? We just asked people, and we we're specifically focused on people in inner suburban communities. We just said, like, tell us about spaces you like that are not where you live or where you work. And this young man, in, I think he was in Thorncliffe Park, I think he was like 18, 20 years old, sent us a picture of like a chair in a mall, like a plastic security guards chair sitting in like a, you, do you know what I mean? You know, those like, you've seen it, right? And oh, for um, sure. And this young man, what we were working with him over WhatsApp so that he could send us information as it came up. And he's like, oh, I know the space I love. I love this chair in a mall. It's like outside of Cinnabon, so it smells good. The mall's always warm. I don't have to share the space with anyone because it's just for one person and no one bothers me. I can sit there as long as I want. So (laughs) it's a private space. The public space that he was talking about was a private space, but there was so much data, right? He gave us so much data. And it's because we didn't say like, how do you connect to public spaces on the waterfront? What do you think of this design? We were just like, tell us about spaces you go when you're not at home or at work. So I think that's one piece is we have to ask more lateral questions. I think the other piece is when we get that data, we end up, we as professionals or as as, as folks in the professional city building space end up doing the analysis. And that's where so much bias shows up, right? It's like you look at a bunch of data, especially even after a consultation, who's looking at the data and saying, this is important, this isn't? who's deciding on the language? You know, I've spoken to a lot of consultants who do this work and folks for a variety of different reasons will censor sometimes things that were said in a consultation. So people say that they experienced racism and what you see in the final report is people expressed discomfort with the way. And it's like, no, no, someone said they experienced racism. (laughs) Like, and, but it's, it's no one's fault. I think it's just, it's, it's the bias, right? It's the bias that the analysis puts on the data. So I think that's another piece. And then the other thing is that, you know, there's been increasingly more conversation about how to accommodate folks who may not be able to afford to get to the consultation or have childcare or elder care or those kinds of supports. But I also think we have to think about neurodivergence, right? And like confidence, like confidence is such a huge thing when you come to a space. Like, do you, do you feel like you have the language to, to, to speak to the thing that you really care about? So those kinds of barriers that are the layer sort of underneath can people afford to get there? Is there food? Is it accessible for a variety of different sort of, for a range of abilities? And uh, those things matter so much. We're starting to talk about that, but there's still a whole other layer that we're not talking about, which is about hosting. We don't think of consultation as a host, as a gathering. 
that we host and want people to be happy and comfortable and talk to each other. We just think of it as a flash in the pan, I think a thing to get done. And I think when you reframe it as hosting, it requires different skills and different resources. I really love this idea around conversations. Um, it feels a lot less extractive to just sit down and talk to somebody about their daily life, about, you know, what interests them, what's bothering them, what's makes them feel good than, than other ways. The idea of hosting is a beautiful turn of, I guess, the this idea of consultation that we're so used to in city spaces and outside of city spaces, just in ways that we work with community. A bit ago, you had spoke at Design TO with a few charts or tools that were of use to folks wanting to consult ethically or to think about doing better when they're doing this kind of work. Would you be able to name one or two of those tools? So I'll start with one that I got to work on, and then I will share the work of incredible folks who have also done this work for many years. But so to start on the scale of sort of this the idea that like radical or fierce incrementalism can make change happen. Uh, my colleague Kofi and I, a number of years ago, started a research project that resulted in this website that is now live called Making Space. And our question was really, as the city of Toronto does more substantive planning engagements with equity deserving groups, how do planners at City Hall cause less harm in the everyday? Because I like to be optimistic and I don't think anyone is intentionally trying to exclude or harm communities, but it happens through these like micro gestures, right? These microaggressions, these micro gestures, but in the design of consultation or public discourse. And so the long and the short of it is that we did a, a year and a half of research with the city of Toronto's planning office, with planners at the city that then turned in, and it was in partnership with the Wellesley Institute, and then it turned into this prototype. So what you see is a prototype. It's a website called Making Space, and in it, there are case studies, tools, links to resources from all over North America that give planners deeper capacity and tools to use when they want to take a beat and think about who am I engaging? How am I engaging them? How do I make space in ways that challenge my own defaults? And so making space is a set of tools. They're very curated. There's five thematic areas based on problems we heard people within institutions consistently experiencing, like how do I communicate in, with, with diverse communities, diverse, broadly defined, right? We hear that all the time from planners. It's actually not even about getting in touch with folks. It's how do I communicate in a way that's safe, that's inclusive, that's actually accommodating of the different stages and mental loads people are carrying and all those different things. So making space is a prototype that we're now testing with the city of Toronto. It was co-designed with planners. It's going to be tested with planners um, and continue to evolve. But it really is about within folk, supporting people within institutions to do better in their everyday without having more time, more money, more anything, just within your everyday, how do we help you and support you to do better in the way that you really want to? Because most folks we talked to were asking the same questions we were, just had limited capacity, right? I think for me, the tools that I, you know, like and in the design TO talk that you referenced, Wes, I, I refer to the Sherry Arnstein ladder of participation, which is sort of has been widely used in um, planning and architecture in cities, urban studies, education for a long time. 
And the idea is that she just maps out, a, it's, a, it's a ladder. And from the bottom to the top, it's like at the bottom, you have tokenism at the top, you have citizen control, resident control, right? And it's been socialized for a long time. And it's a brilliant like eight page essay, but it hasn't been internalized. There's been permutations of it. There's a group called the IAP2 and they turned it into sort of a framework that different cities can use to like map whether or not they're informing residents or really doing that citizen control work. The issue with it is that there's not enough, there aren't enough tools around the citizen control piece, right? And I say citizen because that's Sherry Arnstein's language, but I mean resident, person who lives or resides or uses a city. And so it just seems so esoteric and it seems so vague and it seems so radical and it seems to many impractical, right? I think what a lot of my work has been about has been taking the end of the Sherry Arnstein ladder of citizen participation and trying to add tools underneath it. Tools I create, tools other people create. The one that I love to cite often is Antoinette Carroll's equity-centered community design framework, because I think it is one of the best approaches to, it's one of the best structures to think about the steps that need to be taken to build relationships so that people can have those conversations about the spaces they use, right? Like if I were, if you were to ask me the one thing that's missing in public consultation, I would say it's relationships. If we're talking about decolonizing our practice and doing better, part of it is building trust, building friendships, building relationships, building acquaintances, a network of acquaintances at the very least that know each other before asking sort of like deep personal questions about how I live my life. And so that's sort of my TLDR around what consultation really needs. Antoinette Carroll has done a really good job of adding more depth to that idea by saying any good engagement process, any good community design process, any good collaborative process, it's not even about cities, it's just about design, starts with, let's talk about where we are. How did we get here? Why are we even having this conversation? Why is there a building going up across the street in the first place? Why are we studying a neighborhood? Like, you know, Jane and Finch and Western Mount Dennis all have these planning studies happening. What would happen if you started to talk about why that's happening first? Then you start talking about the history that got us to the scenario. Has this neighborhood not been invested in, studied, engaged? Like, what? why are we here? How did this scenario come about? And what kind of harm was caused? as a result of that history. And then it's, you know, and this is a very standard tool in anti-oppression or social justice work, but I love bringing it into the city space, which is sort of that power mapping piece, which is just understanding and naming and not pretending that, not misleading people as to where power does lie and inviting a conversation as to how power could shift. So the next stage is identifying who's involved what power they think they have. That power could be attached to different parts of their identity. They have education. They grew up in a specific geography. They're white, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, right? Yeah. But power broadly defined. And then it's like a traditional, not a traditional design process, but like a, you know, like a human-centered design process wrapped around that. But I think those three pieces to me, and I don't think they're impractical. I actually think they're very easy to do. And I think if we were to talk about why, the why we're, we're doing a lot of this consultation engagement change in cities and communities, I actually think there would be more trust like in those processes. Yeah. And I think trust is such a, <laughs> in my own work in the nonprofit sphere, um, when we are trying to work with others, trust is such an integral part of any relationship. Yeah. And if you don't have trust, you can't, that is one of the very first 
steps to even beginning conversation. And I think it's something that we're really lacking <laughs> nowadays to build that trust, to share space with others. Yeah, it, it, it's not a one day, we don't have it and one day we do. It, 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 it's built over time. It takes energy, commitment, and can't be a quick thought being like, oh, well, we should engage with so-and-so and make this happen. No, it, it is a process and it's an ongoing process. It can't be done right after this consultation, for example, right? You just make me think that the, the notion of how we live, which is what so much consultation is about, how do you live? How, what is your quality of life like? It's such a deeply personal question, right? Yeah. To ask me how I live, how I feel about where I am in my life and where I live and how I get around, like, you know, and it's like, we, we've been doing this work with a municipality, like a mid-sized municipality in Ontario and around there, like putting an equity lens on their transit planning, like their, their master transit plan. And one of the things that keeps coming up was like, for a lot of folks who are lower income or who have experienced sort of the impacts of all of the compounding barriers that can come with being, you know, a newcomer, racialized, whatever it is, to ask someone about their experience on the bus, like they don't want to talk about being on the bus. They want to be in a car, you know, like they want that freedom. They want the power, the access, the like independence. And so, yes, folks want to talk about a better experience in their current status quo. But underneath that, there's all these expectations and ambitions and dreams and disappointments and all these different things that are layered underneath the questions we ask in consultation. So relationships help. Yeah, like it, they, sure. it, It's not a, you know, panacea, but it's like, they don't hurt. It actually helps to set the context so that I can explain that actually I do want to be in a car. If I can get off the bus, here's my, here's my situation on the bus. But if I were to have the resources, I'd probably be in a car. And that's important data. Or like, I don't want to be seen, you know, we were talking about this too, with, with certain communities being seen cycling is like a class thing. It's like, no, I don't, I don't want cycling infrastructure. Like, a, like I'm not going to be cycling in my neighborhood to get my groceries. Like, no, 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 no. Right. So we make all these, this again, goes back to assumptions, right? It's like, you know, it just, and and the, the, the other piece I'll just quickly say is that so much of consultation lacks a cultural competency. <laughs> like it lacks a class competency, cultural competency, like so many of the things because it's been, it, it originally was designed out of this like colonial Eurocentric paradigm. And so it, it just hasn't changed. No one's thought about how to change that baseline. There have been efforts, but not sustained and integrated into institutions that do this work. That is so, so fascinating on so many levels. And it reminds me a lot of actually a lot of conversations I've had um, at Night Swimming, which is the, the theater company I work with about arts organizations and uh, the ways in which hospitality and like getting to know your collaborators on a, a long time frame and, and really deeply just isn't a thing that actually happens in, in so many arts organizations. And it's really, really cool to look at this, these sort of general principles of hospitality and actually getting to know the people that you're working with, applying in so many different situations yeah. as well. And, and hospitality is such an old fundamental value that we need to in incorporate into so many more things. And I, I was just, I was like, yes. night swimming. I'm doing, I was, I was part of a faculty recently with Brian Quirt. What? Yeah. And oh my gosh. Brian is really cool. And it's it's interesting because I, I feel like just hearing you speak about your work, it feels like a lot of what 
his ethos is and, and his way of working is sort of the artistic parallel to yeah. a lot of what you've been saying about municipal consultation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and as a, a segue from there, I maybe wanted to ask you about the term resilience because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot and that Wes and I have had a lot of conversations about and how it's just become a very, very overused term in so many ways. And I was wondering how you feel about that word and if there are any other words or ways of looking at that term that you think maybe open up some new possibilities. And I can elaborate on that if you like, but... No, it's a great question. You know, it's interesting. Like, I... I think I have had a journey with the word resilient. I personally have, you know, used it as a mantra for myself in times of, you know, complexity and it's given me a personal lift and then seeing it sort of integrated and then it sort of moved into the sustainability context, which made sense to me, like how, how do we have an adaptive capacity? Like how do we develop a capacity to like adapt and evolve? and do our best to survive and, and then thrive like that that made sense and then it started moving into this sort of like social resilience space and it's not that I have a problem with the word because I personally like I have felt that in in my life that my resilience has helped me in some ways but as I get older I also see that like the resilience is is not always about thriving when it comes to the social context right? It's like, when we talk about being proud of our own resilience, it's like that push through mentality. We're proud that we push through. And so this idea of applying it in the social context, it just makes me uneasy because it's almost like not acknowledging the fact that we don't want people to have to constantly, like we want to be interrupting the systems that force people to have to push through. And it's like, there's like a trauma porn thing that goes on with it where it's like yeah. acknowledging that people are resilient, but like not actually like giving up power or doing the work to interrupt a system that forces people to have to be resilient. So I think I'm in a messy place with it right now. I, I don't like, I love, love the word capacity, like having deep capacity. It might just be me, but it feels more powerful. It's like, oh, I like the idea that we foster like and cultivate capacity within ourselves and within our peers and within our community because capacity feels like you have choice right like it feels like if I have capacity I have like a skill almost or like I have power within me to deal with something and to address it and to thrive and it could just be the nomenclature because resilience is so overused that I need something but I like this idea of deepening my capacity to understand the context that I'm in and understand how to thrive versus just like pushing through and making it through. And like, when I hear the word resilience used in the context of social resilience, I think of like finishing a race and being exhausted, you know, like finishing a marathon and being like, <sighs> taking a breath, you know, it doesn't make me think about thriving. And even in the environmental context, it doesn't make me think of thriving. It makes me think of surviving. And so I think that's maybe as I talk it through, I'm telling you how I feel about it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm unsettled. And I also think that any word, even like equity, which now gets used without accountability to have your own definition of what it means, mm -hmm. people can just say it. And it's implied that you're talking about fairness and justice, but a lot of people aren't. 
And same with resilience. Like I'll use resilience to talk about people that are like, should have more power because they have deep capacity and they actually understand how to like do their best to survive and thrive in different contexts. But I don't think that's what people, I think it's just, it's like a throwaway word that you can use to not have to really unpack these complex things that you're talking about. So I I don't know how I feel about the word. It's, I don't feel great. I think. (laughs) I mean, us too. I, I think you actually, put it in a really great context, the difference between surviving and thriving. Yeah. I mean, it's a conundrum in our own brains. So we wanted to throw it at you and see how you feel about it. Um, But you put a really beautiful definition behind, I think, exactly how we are both kind of feeling about the word too, in our own circles, in our own work and our own identity, et cetera. So yeah, thank you for that. Everything you said about capacity really blew my mind and it it makes me think, about sort of the difference between scarcity and abundance and sort of and shifting mm. mindsets in that way. And then what you said about equity, I think is, is so true as well. And do you have a personal definition of equity that you use in your work? Because I, I think you're right that it's so, it's become sort of such a, like, a dangerously flexible term that organizations can just sort of throw out there every which way. Yeah, and I'm just wondering how you pin that down in your own work. Yeah, I think I'd respond to that in a few ways. You know, I'll I'll quickly say on the equity piece, I think part of it, I think my definition has, is contextual, you know, just like our identities, right? Like it changes from place to place, depending on what people need to hear. I think I like the idea that everyone has opportunity to access the things that they need to live a thriving life. And then you can define thriving, right? Where it's like, you can use the social determinants of health. You can say, I have access to employment opportunities. I have a community that makes me feel like I belong. I have time to take care of myself, my health and my mental health. I have housing. I think thriving can be broadly defined, but I think saying that we have the opportunity and the choice to access the things that we all need, which are very different, that to me is closer to a definition of equity, you know, like I think of the wall image and all the things, you know, the permutations on that image of like someone standing behind a fence and then the box. And then, you know, I I just want everyone to have choice. I want everyone to have opportunity and access. And then we all, because we're all going to choose different things, right? Like we all need different amounts of money to be happy, (laughs) right? And like, we need different contexts of livings. And so I think over-prescribing kind of negates the whole idea of equity on scarcity and abundance. I think you really nailed it, Nathaniel, in that like, when I think of capacity, the word abundance comes to mind. One of the the words that describes capacity is abundance to me. And it really builds on a value from the community development space that I feel like has really informed my work, which is asset-based, being asset-based, right? In Mm -hmm. like asset-based community development, which is like not looking at communities from a deficit mindset, and looking and recognizing all the inherent power that folks have and building on that and nurturing that and cultivating that versus thinking about these places as and, and communities and population groups as scarce and lacking abundance and you know riddled with deficit where it's it's not to sort of positive wash the struggles because you have to acknowledge that but also to say and there are there's so much capacity here There's so many assets here. There's so much capacity here. Should folks have access to opportunity, they will be able to 
explore how to move out of those struggles. And I think, so I think, I think that to me is, yeah, the word abundance is such a good one because it really gets to that idea of asset-based community development, which means a lot to me in my practice and and a lot of folks. That's great. I want to, when we're speaking kind of around an abundant city or abundance and putting that in a city context, I guess I kind of have a question as we move toward like, let's say the next 25 years in the city, uh, you know, things will have to change for it to continue to exist. And I guess for me, in a joking kind of walking, talking conversation I had with a fellow urbanist earlier last week, we joked about um, The Purge, the horror movie franchise, and (laughs) putting that in a context, if if we could change something, if we had one day to change anything we wanted to in the city to make it, let's use this term, a more abundant city, what would that be? I don't know. I would just get everyone a house. <laughs> like that's, that's all I want is I want everyone. Like, I think so much starts with housing, right? Like, you know, there, there's lots of other things. I, you know, what I always say to folks at the municipality and who are in different sort of roles or have opportunity to have access to influence is just like, oh my gosh, for the love of God, just invest in conversations with residents all the time. Like there should be a structure where we're constantly talking to people in different neighborhoods and communities and population groups on an ongoing basis so that we're building those relationships. Then when we have specific questions, we already know folks. And like, that doesn't have to be done by the city. You can do that through community agencies and grassroots groups, but like there's ways of doing this. And I just wish everyone was talking more and there was more constant two-way dialogue between institutions and residents and community groups. You know, I just want everyone to have a place to live. (laughs) I think that's such a a tenure in place is such a a way supporting us to feel dignified and grounded and safe. Is everyone safe and gives everyone a sense of peace. And I remember doing work with CMHC right around the time of the national housing strategy and helping them set up that 2030 goal that now gets talked about so much. And when we were talking about, you know, everyone ha- by 2030, everyone will have a home that they can afford and that meets their needs. What was also being thrown around at the time was everyone has a home that gives them a sense of dignity. I, I think that's also it where it's just like, I would just want everyone to have a place that when they like, we talk about um, food, water, shelter. And I mean, this is dated now because there's so many other, like, you know, as fundamental human rights, but shelter to me was like architecture it was like, you know, architecture is more of a human right, like to have a place that we think is beautiful, that like when we walk in, it makes us feel powerful and like all the good feelings, you know, it's a full body yes when we walk in versus that like, ooh, you know, and yeah, that would be my wish. I think that's such an important starting point for how we behave in the rest of our lives, how we relate to each other, how we make choices. I love that idea <laughs> of beauty as like a fundamental human right. And as beauty is something that it inspires a sense of dignity um and that's that's so true and we don't we don't think about that enough for sure i i want to use that as another segue actually because we wes and i have been talking a lot about the intersections of urbanism and art and Mm -hmm. activism and for me whenever i think about that at least that becomes sort of intensely exciting but also thorny and anxiety inducing territory um, as, as Wes will attest in the numerous conversations that we've had about the projects that we're working on. Um, and I was wondering, what is your own experience of or, or thought or relationship to, yeah, the relationship between art 
and activism and, and I guess urbanism in particular and city building? You know, it's interesting. It makes me want to start with just defining city building and urbanism and borrowing <laughs> yesterday, one of my former students who now is one of the co-leads of the Kensington Market Community Land Trust. She came and spoke in the class I teach and she described city building as relationships and power dynamics that make decisions around our urban environment. And she is just like a brilliant young person who's just getting so much more clarity through the doing. Um, and I, I just thought that that definition was, was to me what city building is. So if I think about the intersection of city building and art and activism, you know, it makes me think about when I started my first organization, I had sort of three big wishes. And one of them was that publicly funded spaces like galleries, like public spaces, all of these different things, museums, any, anything that gets public dollars that are um, supposed to be sort of places of gathering for the public should be places where we have civic dialogue, but through different kinds of expression, because not all of us use our words to communicate and not all of us find that using our words is the most effective way for us to share who we are and how we feel and what our dreams and ambitions and challenges are. And so I have always struggled with a like head heavy <laughs> city building urbanism world. I, I, it's always been something that I I have never found a place in the public debate because I can't use my words in that way. So the way in which I find my, I bring myself into the dialogue and debate about the future of our cities is through practice and the practice of co-creating with communities, like helping communities make design and art through creating space for myself and others to make art together and talk about it and sharing that space and not having it be a place where pass people passively consume it, but having it be a place where people are in it with us, breaking it, putting it back together, like in real time in the space. So for me, it's always been, you know, so much of my work now is just saying this to my co-founder Kofi yesterday, that you know, especially because of the pandemic, so much of our world and our feelings about cities and any pretty much any topic have been confined to Zoom or Twitter or social media, which means that we have to communicate with words. And if 75% of communication is nonverbal, so much is being left on the table. And so I actually think now more than ever, we need art because we're being forced to give talks and listen to things and read people's Twitter and like read articles and write articles and, like, you know, all these and, and, and listen to amazing podcasts, which is, it's all great. And it, it's, it's a yes. And right. Like we also just need to consume in other ways that allow us to do that integration work. Cause I don't feel like when we're talking or when we're reading, I, I just don't always feel like we're integrating. I think we just need space to for you know our ideas and our hopes and dreams to to integrate and I think that has to happen through art. I cannot live in an urbanism or city building. And city building to me is sort of synonymous with activism. You are interrupting power in some way, hopefully as a good city builder. I think that's what all good city builders should do, not all of them do, but I think that's what a good good city building is. It has inherent activism in it. Yeah, I think it's underappreciated how much art can do to advance our discourse around cities and communities. So I wish for more of it. Great. And yeah, I think like when we think about social infrastructure and public space and 
everything in between, art has such a place there. But I guess it really comes to like looking at us and our own work that we're trying to accomplish right now. Like I feel like I'm on the outlines of a world that I'm very interested in, but don't know much about, but want to and want to be that citizen power that can help create change through art or help to at least start a conversation around issues and things that that should should be different. Um, I don't know how to answer it other than that, but I guess that's, I guess, kind of where a lot of why we're doing, why we're talking to you today came from that thought. So thanks for that answer. So just to uh, move to our next question, in your own journey to where you are today, I think it's really important to also note how you got to where you are. Mm -hmm. So whose shoulders are you standing on? Who made it possible to do the work you're doing today? Was there anyone who kind of helped inspire you to be at where you are at this exact moment in your life? I was just sharing this with someone list this week that there were, I, I, stum- I think I stumbled into a very unusual, atypical urbanism community because, you know, it's like what you focus on grows, right? I was, I was probably drawn in that direction. So that's where I was looking, but I most certainly, this goes back to the start of the conversation and speaking about why I moved from Vancouver to Toronto, you know, when I was started out, like I finished my undergrad and started an organization that was called many things like a design think tank. It was, you know, it was like a studio. It was like, it it was all sorts of things, but really at, at its center, it was asking the question, how might people get more meaningfully not involved, but in positions of power and control over their built environment and specifically communities where, you know, folks are experiencing the impacts of so many barriers and compounding barriers. And so it just didn't, not many people understood what I was trying to do because it was like, are you trying to build buildings? Are you trying to do better consultation? Are you trying to like make public art? Like, what are you trying to do? And so the, the people who had, could hold space for the lateral possibilities of all of the different directions in which my career could go were a group of incredible women, absolutely incredible women who gave me just like what seemed at the time, like a small opportunity that, you know, when you give someone who's hustling like that, you know, it's like, what's, what's the phrase? Like you give me, give me an inch, take a mile, whatever. I'm too terrible with phrases like that, but you get what I'm saying. No, that's um, it. Like, <laughs> I want to say make a mountain out of a molehill, but that was wrong. But that also love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was like, you know, folks who just gave me a little bit of space, you know, so I remember I wanted to start an architecture program in high schools and I didn't want it just to be like super, like affluent children whose parents could pay for summer programs and summer camps, but there were costs associated with it. And we had to like, you know, get materials and supplies. And it was basically architecture 101 for kids. And, and I remember, um, Margie Zeidler was one of our first supporters who helped us get kids from Regent park into our program from Lord Dufferin school and to really help it thrive and be successful. I remember a friend's dad, uh, who was a developer here in Toronto on one of my trips after university, I met up with him and I had never met him before. And he listened to what I was talking about. And then I got back to Vancouver and there was like a check in the mail for like $2,000 or $1,500. So it was some, like some amount like that. And for me, it was like, oh, 
I'm going to get business cards and a website. (laughs) Like, so, but it was these gestures of people who were like, okay, you know, and I think it was like really like best of luck with what you're trying to do. And, you know, with that future builders program, it was about like, okay, like I can give you a little lift here. Or as even, you know, we were talking about our friend Jane Barrow the other day, who was like, what do you love architecture and baking? Okay. Like do a walk around that. And then it turned into a walk that was really popular and turned into me getting really involved in the Jane's walk community, eventually becoming the chair of Jane's walk meeting you Wes. Like it's these little things that if you trace back to like one phone call where someone's like, Oh, do a walk about the things you love. It actually traces into these like deep relationships, the deep formative experiences being on the you know, steering committee of Jane's Walk was a really transformative experience for me in my life and my sense of rootedness. Um, Nathaniel, we were talking about feeling rooted in place. Jane's Walk played a huge role in me feeling like I was part of something in Toronto. And so anyways, when you talk about whose shoulders, it's like hundreds of people and all the gratitude for like the ancestors, but also the folks whose ideas I was trying to integrate and play with and break down and rebuild to the Sherry Arnsteins, you know, like it's, it's to the people who seeded the ideas that I then, you know, with um, love and respect evolved and brought into discourse that helped keep doors open, you know? So it's like, it's, it's like so many things, right? It's everything from like, oh, wow, I got a check for like $1,500 in the mail or like support to bring kids from uh, Lord from Regent Park to a program that we were running downtown but it's also just the ideas, right, that we borrow and build on and, and acknowledge. So, yeah, I just, you know, and then, of course, like family and friends and all of those kinds of things. Those those might be the more obvious ones. But I think in the city building space, there were people who were not fitting squarely into the professional practice. They weren't architects. They weren't planners. They didn't work at City Hall. They didn't work at Queen's Park. They were the people ex- existing in the places in between. And those people, somehow we found each other. And even their existence, like they might not have done anything for me, just the fact that they existed and they were thriving. I'm standing on their shoulders. So I'm like, that's possible. You are living this like cool life in the spaces of social infrastructure and city building. That means there's a chance I can too. So just please keep existing and letting me watch <laughs> and you know participate from a distance because I needed I needed hope, right? At that time, because so much of urbanism was about having letters behind your name of which I had none. Yeah. That's so wonderful to, to hear you speak to just because I, I think like in, in any scenario, whenever you meet someone with, you know, as much expertise and, and passion as you have, I'm always so curious about like, oh, but how did they get to where they are? And who are all the people who, who influenced them? And yeah, those, those people um, who have given us the tools or set the example just by existing. Um, so thank you so much for for speaking to that. That's so amazing. Can I also add one last yeah. thing, which you just Absolutely. made me think of, Daniel? I feel like I made so many mistakes, and the people who had grace for me, who kept space open and didn't slam doors as I made mistakes, as I like fell into my own blind spots, as a, like I think we all have blind spots. I think we all, especially when you're doing work like what I do, not only do you have blind spots, but you also don't know how to do a lot because it hasn't been done. Or like only versions of it have been done and not integrated together. And so I think I would acknowledge the people who had grace for me when I messed up, messed up broadly defined, like little things and big things, and helped me understand that I did, and then said, let's try again. That is probably the most important. The people who kept their hearts and minds open as I stumbled my way through my career. That's incredible. Thank you for adding that. That's so necessary to hear. Absolutely. 
I, I wanted to ask as well, yeah. um, I wanted to just ask about your personal relationship to the city mm. of Toronto and in particular, if there's any place that you feel is sort of the heart of the city for you um, and then also any places that maybe no longer exist that you find yourself nostalgic for because uh, mm -hmm. when I first moved here constantly people were saying oh you should have been here 10 years ago it was yeah. so cool <laughs> um, yeah and so and I'm I'm wondering I think everyone everyone has those spots that that no longer exist but that actually now since the pandemic after. Yeah, especially now with so many things yeah. closing or being wiped out. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what, what those are for you. Well, I'm going to start with the relationship to the city because I think, yeah, I have a funny relationship with Toronto where I still, I think I still inherently like in my body feel new to the city because, you know, there's, you're always going to have like when I land home in Vancouver, my partner and I drive across the country a lot to go visit my parents. There's something about the visceral experience of the place you grew up that is in your body that never changes. I'm very comfortable in Toronto. My life is here. So much of my life is here. There's still a part of me that feels like it's new. Like when someone says North York, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, North York. Yeah, <laughs> I know exactly where that is. And I do, but like, you know, it's not something I grew up saying. So I think there's always that feeling of newness, which maybe is an exciting thing for me. The heart of the city for me will always be in Scarborough. It was really the first place in the city where I felt very accepted, welcomed and invited to be myself and explore ideas that consumed me, like, you know, dreams and ambitions and ideas that consumed me, but also where I learned so much about the edges of those ideas and how to do them with grace and respect for community and, and collaboratively. So like the heart of, I think my, my Toronto heart exists in Kingston, Galloway, Orton Park in Scarborough because it was a place on so many levels that made me feel like home and still does. I think, I hope it always will. When I think about what has changed, yeah, I think it's just, maybe it's just when you get older and you're in a city and like that just happens. Like you go to a street that you used to like, you know, wander down at 2 a.m. after being out all night and it's like gone. Totally. <laughs> like, like, and so I think we'll always, like any kind of erasure is just so hard and like, some of it you have to accept is like the natural course of a city, like things change and like, but it's hard when you go through it. I feel like I'm going through it for the first time. Like I'm the person who was in Toronto 15 years ago. So I'm experiencing my first horizon of change. And I'm sure if I continue to live in Toronto for the next 10 or 20 years, there will be a few more. I'm already noticing it in the neighborhood that I live in, which is the Junction Triangle, which for many, many years, because of the three factories within the railroad tracks, like we're sandwiched within the railroad tracks, plans down parallel to Dundas and then just north of DuPont, that's the triangle. And because of the factories, it wasn't as highly desirable for folks because there was toxic remediation and all of these things happening for many years that I think created a bit of a mental model around this neighborhood. Now with all of the access to transit and the development around it in the junction and Bloor West and High Park, there's a lot of attention on this wonderful little neighborhood full of workers' cottages uh, from the turn of the 20th century. And I've only lived here four years and you could just feel like you're starting to feel the energy of change around. And yeah, I have nostalgia for lots of different places. And, you know, I think Wes and I were just talking about the beaver, I think the other day. And like, and I was just talking to one of my students about who's making her, her final 
her final like thesis project is going to be a zine. And I started saying, oh, you need to go to the zine library at, at the Beaver. And then realizing that that was gone. So anyways, it's a long-winded answer. I think there's just so, there's just so much change. And I think it's to be expected, but I think, and I'm all for change. It's just the displacement that makes me sad when I can't find the things that were displaced, like the things that met my needs. So like the zine library is a terrible example, but no, I will, it's a great example. <laughs> but it's kind of like, oh, where is that place where I go and like by myself, grab a stack of art? It's kind of like reading a paper newspaper versus online where it's like, you know, the nice thing about the beef is that you just go pick up a heap of zines and you wouldn't be like, I'm going to read this one and that one. You just pick up a heap and you'd go sit down and you'd like get yourself a drink or whatever. And, and you just consume art for as long as you wanted. And then that was it. And so it's, it's almost like the things I feel nostalgia for the experiences or like the, the access to those kinds of experiences versus the places themselves. Cause I acknowledge that places evolve and change and all of that. So I love the way you answered that. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I would agree with you. The one thing I did want to note though, is how you worded that you still feel new to the city. And I think Two things, nostalgia-wise, I feel like we always dream about our childhood home or childhood bedroom. Like you always kind of wake up in your dreams in your childhood bedroom. Um, so even, yeah, I've been living in the city for 12 years now and that still happens to me. But on the opposite end of it, I think I'm starting to not dream about those anymore and starting to feel, not not that I ever did, but I guess my subconscious feels at home here now. But just secondly about feeling new here, One of the most exciting things when I moved here was walking down a street I'd never been down, going to a cafe, having the best coffee I've ever had, or like going to a dive bar and sitting on like, I'm thinking the green room in uh, the annex, but like sitting in that back little patio area with like ivy crawling up the walls and you're kind of like, where am I? What is this? I love this. And I think, especially pandemic wise, I spent a lot of months isolated in my home or neighborhood, walking only the streets within like a kilometer or two radius. And this summer I finally got out and started biking around the city, going to the Danforth, the only cafe, like places I'd never been. And that childhood excitement to see new places, to touch new things, to drink new drinks to like be in a new place I I really think like the explorer in me uh still gets excited by the idea of like feeling new in the city so I'm happy that you living here just as long kind of also feel that feeling and I think that that's a great feeling that we all shouldn't lose especially as the city changes and like as Nathaniel mentioned we're doing we're uh, also uh, making a show about flux in the city the idea of like constant change I think it's up to us, especially in the recovery or whatever the next step is in this pandemic to like get out to explore different neighborhoods, to go to North York, to go to Scarborough, to go to Mississauga, to invest in our neighborhoods, in their businesses and really like take a walk, go down a new street. <laughs> so that's my rant. But I love that. I, I I love like what you were saying about, like, I think we all have just been walking one or two kilometers around our homes. And it is so interesting right now, the experience of going to a new place. I feel like I'm entering someone's like an intimate space when I cross that one kilometer threshold. I'm like, oh, I'm in this other neighborhood and they have a different rhythm and a different beat and a different 
like I'm not I'm not the person that's typically looping around this neighborhood now. And so like it is interesting after the pandemic going to new places because you're in sort of people's homes have been extended beyond their homes in a way that like I didn't feel a sense of like deep connection to all the tiny streets a kilometer around my house. But now they're an extension of my home. And so like, it's almost like we're in other people's houses all the time, which is like such a beautiful thing. But it's like, even just walking your circuit, I'm in your world, even though I am not in your house, like I'm still in your house, you know? Mm. And and yeah. public space has been, yeah, like monumental in uh, so many people's lives, even just our park systems. Yeah. The amount of time I've spent in parks these past two summers would like outdo any past summer before that because it has been it has been my backyard it has been my meeting place it's where me and Nathaniel like met for uh, wine coffee I'm not even sure a picnic in a park <laughs> yeah, uh, our first time the first so, time we ever met in person yeah with yeah so uh I guess we have two last questions for you one would be just around your feelings <laughs> this one is quite specific but what are your feelings around the CN Tower and if it could be replaced what what would be replaced in its spot? It's interesting. And as a tower that has like a radio tower, it's an outdated piece of tech, but a great tourism. Like we see it in its our skylines. We know it represents Toronto, but if we had something else to represent our city, what would it be? You know, it's interesting. Like when I first thought I wanted to go do a master's in architecture after I finished my undergrad and I was drafting all those, you know, the your entrance essays and all of that kind of stuff. The essay I wrote was called The New Monumentality. And it's what I wanted to study in school, which is kind of full circle that I now run an organization called Monumental. And the thesis of the essay and what I wanted to study was I wanted to live in a world where our schools and community centers and roads and parks were so beautifully designed to represent our, you know, plurality of values. So like a park in my neighborhood versus a park in someone else's neighborhood is was so representative of the values and, and the spirit of that community that the park and the school and the community centers would become monuments that like people from around the world would travel to see. Like they would travel to come see the community center that's across the street from my house because it it was the monument of Toronto. It's a monument in Toronto and that we'd have more. And so it would like Toronto being a city that has like the best community centers in the world. (laughs) Like that's the kind of thing that gets me excited. Like whenever, you know, like, and this kind of goes back to the start of our conversation, whenever there's like concentrated energy or power around one thing, I get very nervous. Like I inherently get nervous because it feels very vulnerable. It's like, well, if that's the identity of our city and then that falls apart, then what do we have? And so I really love distributed networks, right? Of any, of lots of things. And so I would love to, you know, and and the CN Tower is federally owned, right? Like I would love to see that investment go into creating social infrastructure that like was so representative of values and community and community voice that it became a draw for people everywhere. I think that would be that would be my dream that our monuments are things that are are that our lives happen in that are not just these like flash in the pan moments in time things we visit but it's like you know the spaces we live are a monument of our values of our collective voice all of, and all of that so I'd want a distributed network of 
the spirit of CN Tower distributed in many things. <laughs> That's so A beautiful. Beacons everywhere. <laughs> uh, I, I love that idea of the just the, the everyday places that make up the fabric of your life mm-hmm. in a city being worthy of that monumental status and that that dignity that we afford buildings like the CN Tower, but that we don't always afford the people who live around it in Toronto. Um, yeah, that's that's incredible. I've never I've never quite thought of it that way. Thank you for. Well, think about it. Think about when like a friend comes, sometimes you're like, okay, let's get on our bikes. I'll show you like all the places I've lived in the city. And that's the place that I used to go out at night. And that's, that used to be my favorite restaurant. Like we kind of do it anyways, right? Like when we, you know, when my family comes to the city and like I've moved, it's like, I show them my old place. I show them my new, like we do that anyways, right? Like sometimes we take people to the CN Tower, but often we just take people, we tour them around our lives. Where our nostalgia lies. Exactly. And so, and the monuments of sort of, we curate the monuments of our lives. And so, you know, I would love the ones that we invest in publicly and we do, we build collectively to be as exciting to share as, you know, and be like the beacon, the literal beacon, the CN Tower is in, but distributed across the city. Amazing. Nathaniel, I'm going to throw it to you to ask our last question today. Okay. And yeah, I, I wanted to ask as someone who has has been here for a limited amount of time, and even just hearing you talk about the beaver, I'm like, what is this mythical place that I was never able, the tail end, missed it by a hair, was never able to experience. And it, it all those stories are, are so exciting. And I was wondering, um, for someone who maybe doesn't know a lot about the city, doesn't know about all of these amazing organizations like Monumental uh, that are doing so much incredible work um, or know about a lot of grassroots initiatives yet. Um, What's one way, because I I think a lot of the barriers to entry for understanding this stuff can be kind of intimidating sometimes for people. And and what's one way that someone can make a first connection with some of these concepts or, or really dip their toe into getting involved in their city and, and making a positive change. And I say that acknowledging that folks come from so many different positionalities yeah. and intersections, and that's very different depending on, are you are you a newcomer? You know, have you lived here for two years, for five years? How long is it taking you to wake up to some of these questions, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Um, it's such a great question. Years ago, I did a project with a few colleagues called the Bureau of Community Lovers. And we distributed volunteers across the city with these adorable plexiglass clipboards that asked people how they felt about like what they wanted to know more about the city. And then we would like, we'd be like, are you interested in like sports or what are you interested in? Are you interested in food? And then we would like write out a whole bunch of community organizations and places they should go. And it was almost like a, a prescription. Like we would just be standing on the street be like, do you want to get to know places in the city? Like we'll just take, and then we would Google and we would just like put together a little sheet and give it, I got to find that. It was such a great project. It was like a, it was like a bit of performance art, but it was also just a way to like distribute and democratize knowledge about the city. It was such a fun project. That being said, projects like that are an example of a principle that um, my friend, Misha Gluberman, who's an, who's an awesome organizer in the city. He and his, his friend, Sheila wrote a book called chairs are where the people go. And there's a, I think you both would really love the book. And there's a section in the 
book that talks about being new to a place and like how to build community. And there's, it sort of says, and again, this is like totally loaded with privilege and that's part of my lens, right? So I need to acknowledge that. And that I'm comfortable being visible is like, you know, if you want a group, if you want to meet a group of people that like only knit with blue yarn, just start a group, put up a poster saying like, if you knit with blue yarn exclusively, (laughs) let's meet on Tuesdays. <laughs> you know, like, and, and like, I think they say it so much more articulately in the book, but it's kind of like, if there's a really specific kind of community you want to build, sometimes it's just nice to ask and try and start to gather those folks. And I think the thesis in that is always to not be obsessed with scale. So if like one person shows up, you know, every week, that's one more person versus like, putting our bias and our judgment and and our like, you know, self-doubt all over it and being like, well, I guess no one's really interested. It's like, no, it's now we've got, now we've doubled. Right. And so not fetishizing scale, I think when we try to build community in the city, because I think it's so much about like numbers and who comes out and like, but sometimes it's just about like making like, you know, to that earlier conversation around whose shoulders you stand on. It's like building the confidence to feel like, oh, now I'm two people with this interest. That's cool double the energy, double the access, double everything. So it really is, that's very connected to a sense of permission for sure. But it also doesn't have to be visible, right? Like it doesn't have to be like postering your neighborhood. It can be like in your building, it can be, you know, much more intimate a scale. But I always, I found that in the city when I wanted to, you know, draw in people to have a conversation, to be part of something, to learn, you know, to go back to my first Jane's walk about bakery architecture. The idea wasn't that I was going to do a historic tour of like old bakeries in the city. What I was invited to do was walk around my neighborhood and learn about the bakeries in my neighborhood and share a few of those stories, but then on the, and like why they were designed the way they were, but then to ask people to share if they had any stories of their own. And it seemed to be a topic that really galvanized people and got people excited. And I had all these like seniors come out and say, oh, my my mother would always have a cake inside the house. Like our house was a bakery. Like in case company came over, there was never not a cake in the cake stand at our home. And like, so it wasn't someone who was like interested in bakery architecture, but they felt a, a huge connection to sort of this idea of baking as a way to cultivate community. So it's also not to over-prescribe the invitation, not to be too specific, because I think letting people find their way in to how to connect to the thing that you're passionate about is um, is part of, you know, that grace, right? Like giving people um, space and grace to kind of find their find the connection versus being too specific. So the TLDR is kind of just create little spaces like what you two are doing and don't be obsessed with scale. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah, for taking time with us today and for speaking so candidly and beautifully and eloquently um, about all of these topics. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Yeah. And I'm so happy. I'm, 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 I'm just so excited that you get to do this. Like just even getting to have this conversation and talk to folks and explore your own reflections and ambitions and dreams through conversation is such a beautiful thing. So yeah, it's amazing. I was just gonna say thank you for being our first guest, yeah. Nathaniel. Please, it's true. You're our first guest. I just, I just also just wanted to say thank you. And I, I, you know, I pulled up some of the projects and and the folks that you were 
speaking about and, and making space. And I, I'm so excited to sort of go through and read them after this. And I just wanted to thank you so much because I think com compared to Wes, a lot of these concepts and a lot of the context in the city is really new to me. Um, yeah. And it's just, you know, my mind is blown hearing you when we talk about these things. So thank you so much. Yeah, oh my God. It's like, it's nice to sh like, you know, ref like the sharing helps you reflect. So I feel like even hearing both of you and Wes, even hearing that you're like 12 years in, sort of still feeling new. Like it's, it's, it's like, this is why conversations matter, right? This is why like these kinds of conversations tell us more about what we want for the city than saying like, what do you want for your city? You know, like, <laughs> like that idea that they're like, oh, Let's like explore weird dreams versus like, so I didn't even think that my response would be get everyone a house. But when you ask like really like fun, beautiful questions that like don't force you to have to have like a, like the smartest person in the room response, <laughs> it just gives people so much more space, you know? So it's so evident that this is, this is better consultation of what you're both doing. And now, and now you're sharing the knowledge, which I think is so great. So fun. Thank you again. It means so much. Today's episode was edited by Wesley Reibling and project managed by Hannah Sheen. Post-production was by Aria Tom, and music was by Aria and Benjamin Mestripolito. Funding for Flux is from the Social Innovation Department at TMU and Major Matt Mason Collective. Today's episode could not have happened without our incredible guest, Zara. Zara, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your expertise with us. Thanks for listening. Catch you in a few weeks.